welcome to What Is It About the Weather, where once a week we get together to explore the many ways that weather intertwines itself into our lives. I'm your host, Mark Jelinek, and this week we're going to be looking at beating the weather instead of cheating the weather like we did a few weeks ago. But before diving into the topic, as always, as I like to do at the top of the podcast, I want to take a moment and say thank you to all who have taken the time to support the podcast in some ways. We've talked about being able to do it financially, try to keep us cost neutral, talked about doing it by telling others about the pot, kind of being the marketing arm, if you will, marketing and sales. Of course, there's always that opportunity to be part of, I don't know, product development research, giving me some show thoughts or ideas in any way that you're supporting the podcast. Thank you. It helps make the process a little easier to get done each week, more interesting for everybody, I hope. Now, I've gotten this question a few times about how can I be more engaged weather-wise, just generally. And we've, we've talked about it a few different ways, right? We've talked about the ability to... You know, learn more about the weather scientifically, if you will. We've talked about you know different channels and avenues where you can enhance your knowledge or understanding. But some people like to kind of be actively engaged or involved, and there are ways to do that. And I, I wanted to bring up one because I saw an article this week. It wasn't the best article in the world, but it reminded me of a program out there for those in the U.S. called Skywarn. And what Skywarn is, is it allows those that are interested, so if you are from a weather standpoint, kind of becoming a support mechanism, just like you know this podcast being a Weather Ready Nation ambassador, think of it as being an active, engaged participant in the weather going on around you and helping your local weather office know what's going on around you, kind of be in their eyes and ears. And the program Skyward has been around for, for quite some time. And there's part of that is an educational component. Some of these you can do online if you don't have an office near you or it's hard to get to the sessions they have. But they also have classes. And this is particularly, you know, interesting opportunity for those that find severe weather interesting or something they you know should be more actively aware of so i'm going to put a link in the show notes for those that are interested and you can go to to the skywarn website and learn more about what's available in terms of both increasing your knowledge and being a participant and helping keep others safe as well take a look all right so let's Let's jump into the main topic. Now, a couple weeks ago, we did, you know, if we can't cheat weather. So today we're going to do, maybe we can beat it. And yeah, we're going to throw a little caveat in up front, of course, is we're not trying to, kind of like with, you know, cheating weather, we were kind of trying to be sneaky. With beating weather, you know, we're not talking about that somehow we're going to do some big weather modification or altering event. But there are times that we need to push back a little, if you will, Right. And this is like with anything in life. 
you know, when you're going after something, you're, you know, something's coming at you from one direction and you're trying to either deflect it or divert it or overcome it, whatever it might be, right? That's what life's all about, right? Is, is that struggle between, you know, what happened here and how you're going to counteract it there. And weather is a part of that, right? And how we deal with it is it a, it's a tricky thing. You know, you hear about all these new technologies we have today. And I've kind of, you know, mentioned a few here and there. And we've even talked about old school tech. Like just something as simple as an umbrella and how it allows us to beat weather, if you will, to stay dry, to stay out of the elements when the goal is to stay dry. But we know that, uh, Weather can throw a few curveballs and make an umbrella a little trickier to use at sometimes than others. But I wanted to hit on a couple of, of things that had been brought to my attention. One we've we've talked about a little bit before, one we one we haven't. But just within this context of, you know, how effective are the tools and what do we need to know about them to make them? the best that they can be for our situation. So let's start with something called breaks. Now, it's interesting. When I was doing a search on this topic, right, when I was kind of looking into it, the word break can you, you know, could be spelled two different ways, with the E-A-K or the A-K-E. And, you know, one is to kind of stop things, one's to put a pause in things. And interestingly enough, they, they were kind of used interchangingly in a, in a couple of areas related to weather. And you, I guess you'll see why in a moment, and it'll be a little clearer. So specifically, we're going to talk about snow, but importantly within that, wind and wind's impact on snow. We're, still, we're going to hit a couple different ways. And then the other is taking that wind and, and what it does with sand or sediment but particularly sand. And it's still really simple, right? When we look at what wind does and how it moves things around, I was listening to somebody talk this week about tumbleweeds, right? And for those that don't know, it's just one of those annoying things that can get in the way of life sometimes. But so can other things like sand or snow or things that get blown around by the weather. So the weather's this great transport mechanism, but sometimes it transports things that drive us crazy. You know, I've mentioned recently how I'm dealing with pollen here and wind stirs things up. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to deal with those things. And in particular, in this case, there's a couple of things that you may have heard of before that are called snow breaks or sand breaks that have to do primarily with disrupting wind flow. Now, you may not think of it that way. A lot of times people think of them as somehow being a mechanism to stop the transport of the items. And really, that's not necessarily what it's trying to do. What it's trying to do is break up the wind enough 
to where the items can deposit themselves and become an anchor. And quite honestly, with sand, the primary use is actually building up things like sand dunes, which create an excellent barrier when severe weather does come for things like tropical cyclones. And in the case of snow, again, a lot of times they're used near roadways, not so much. Again, it's not to stop anything from blowing around, but it's disrupting the wind flow enough to where the snow will deposit. And once it starts depositing, it can create an opportunity for more snow to stick to it, if you will. And that's really what these things are. These simple little fences, because that's really what they are. It's just a little fence. Disrupt weather enough to create an environmental situation where things want to come together in group. But it is more about what it does to the wind than anything else. And that's why, you know, when you look at these things and you see them and people call them fences, and that's why they don't always call them a fence and they call them breaks. But even when you look at them, it doesn't make a lot of sense all the time because quite often there's big gaping holes. You know, it's not like you're building a solid barrier and that's not what you're trying to do. You want to allow some movement and that's kind of the interesting part is there's been an incredible amount of study done with these. And, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, when I, when I research topics for the podcast, a lot of times there's not a lot of papers or there's not a lot of research. Well, this one, there's been tons of research, and I'll put a few good examples in the show notes if you're interested. But what's particularly intriguing about it is it's not in, like, weather journals or anything like that. It's in other types of journals, the whole point of the podcast, right, about how weather gets into other parts of lives. And this has to do with farm management. It has to do with transportation. It has to do with it can get into ecology or, or for instance, beach preservation, things like that. And so there were a lot of interesting what I would call hybrid documents that get into research sometimes but also are trying to convey why you would do these things and what the benefit are and maybe comparing different tools. But for all the things that have been tried over time, what they come back to is the techniques that we probably used when these things were first invented are still some of the most effective today. And that's, that's where I got in this whole technology thing up front is we try these different things, we try different formations and all this stuff. But in the end, some of the earlier designs are the best designs. I guess it gets back to that umbrella example. But it was also intriguing to learn or see that, you know, part of what people try to do with this stuff sometimes is they do it naturally, and that can be done with these as well. So, for instance, right, using just shrubs and hedges or trees can create these same sort of snow barriers, which particularly used with snow, or different types of grasses and vegetation used at the beach. Create this opportunity for the sand to gather as opposed to dispersing. In the end, it's about creating anchors. And, and, I, and I ran across this other one with snow, and you'll understand the break here, spelled the other way, with the A-K-E, is it had to do with snow on roof lines and, and how you put these little things that are called snow guards 
and maybe you've seen them if you're in an area that gets a lot of snow each year, just these little disruptive patterns on roofs, but these little things that stick up from the roof line. And really all they're trying to do is stop the snow from just sliding off the roof and potentially hurting somebody. So the idea is actually to anchor it to the roof so that it can melt slowly. So it usually leaves a little gap between the end of the roof, you know, wherever an overhang might be, and where these things start because that allows less to accumulate on that other portion or it to kind of be the melt area. Simple idea. Been around a very long time. Still used today. Yes, we always, as always, come up with more sophisticated, more involved approaches. But that doesn't necessarily always make them better. So whether you've heard them called sand breaks or snow breaks or sand fences or snow fences or snow guards for the ones that are on the roofs, it doesn't matter. Conceptually, they're all trying to do the same thing, which is create a little disruption pattern. And I think that's part of what's neat about it is it's not trying to stop anything. It's not trying to say somehow we can fight back in some sort of drastic way. It's saying, yeah, I'm going to just trip you up out of your normal routine. And that's really all I need to do to achieve my primary goal. Because sometimes, as we know, when you go and you try to create a solid barrier... It doesn't always work out the way you expect it to. And I was th- I saw a couple of those lately and it made me laugh a little. I was thinking about, you know, when if anybody's ever had a flooding basement problem has known this. You know, you try to put treatment areas in or you might dig up near where the leaky spot is. But if you think about how water flows around a house, that can be easier said than done. And there was an episode of the Andy Griffith show, old show here in the US years ago and the committee was talking about how they were going to spend money on the church and try to even it up where they had had some washout on one side of the church and what they did ultimately is they tried to kind of use flooding again which created the problem as a tool to solve the problem and they did temporarily but it didn't work out in the long run and it just reminded me that sometimes doing a complete control can take drastic or require drastic effort to really do that. Where sometimes, like these sort of things, it's just a simple solution. You know, I'm not trying to change it. I'm not trying to do this big, complicated thing. But with a little effort, I can kind of just muddle it up enough the general process, to where it can have big long-term impacts that are favorable for what you're trying to do. Now, the other one, the other one that I constantly get is the tricky game of, of sud avoidance and, and about sunscreens, etc. And as I've mentioned before, you guys kind of know my story with that. So I tend to maybe get a few more questions than your average Joe. And they're interesting in a couple different ways. Like people trying to understand when are they really in the shade. And we don't always realize that when we're out and about, when you're in the car, 
even when you're not directly in the sun, when you're, let's say you're outside under a shelter that you think, oh, there's no direct sunlight here, or even sitting near a window where you don't get direct sunlight. But it is important to remember that ultraviolet radiation bounces around. Now, it's not a straightforward thing. It's, yes, hands down, it's worse being straight up directly in the sunlight. But it's not as simple as just popping in under a shelter and thinking you're fully protected. So that sunscreen component remains important. And you know, you, you're, you hear more and more about UVA versus UVB, and I get those same questions. And, you know, we don't have the protection system developed for the UVA like we do UVB. UVB is the stuff that really, you know, that has to do with your tanning and, and the obvious burn. But UVA, as we're finding out, gets deeper into the skin and probably is more related to your skin wrinkling or looking aged and can be involved in the cancer process as well. So the reality is, you know, shade helps, right? But ideally, you want to protect yourself from, it doesn't matter whether it's UVA or UVB, from ultraviolet radiation. So it is best to look for ways and mechanisms that we can do that, right? And sunscreens are a primary way to do that. That we think about actively every day because it's going to allow you to cover everything, right? All your exposed skin. And there's what, what's called organic and inorganic. And you don't need to get caught up necessarily too much on the details. And that's what I tell people. Use the ones that work for you as long as they're giving you the level of protection that you're looking for. And no, you don't need to use SPF 5000 or anything like that. Generally, if you're in that 30 to 50 range, you're probably doing smart things for you. When you get above that, yeah, it can give you some additional protection, but you know, people have this tendency to think, if I go from 50 to 100, I'm getting twice as much. Well, it doesn't work that way because you're working with a smaller amount of percentages versus the other way around. So again, don't don't get focused so much on, you know, as long as you're getting in that 30 or 50 range, that's a good thing. And start there as a minimum. Okay. But the probably the bigger thing, and this is the one I get the most questions about, is this whole concept of reapplication and why do I have to do it and all that kind of stuff. And people want to you you read different things on the internet. Yes, there is some truth that sunscreens can break down or some part of them, the chemical processes. And that is, it, it is an interesting thing. So some of them, and you even remember, anybody who, who grew up in a, in a different area, if you will, a lot of the old sunscreens that people used to put on their nose that was kind of like this white, pasty stuff. And that type of sunscreen worked a different way. That one was focused on, and it is called inorganic, it's, it's based on reflecting and refracting the dangerous radiation away from your skin, whereas the more 
commonly ones we use today, the organic-based ones, do create a chemical process and actually take that radiation and turn it into a heat engine, if you will, and create heat from your skin and disperse it. But it's a whole chemical process, and it's doing a thing. And some of the chemicals in that process do break down over time and get used up over time. But the bigger reason for reapplication is less about the breakdown, usually, and use the caveat there that usually it's the case, and more about you just rubbing it off or getting worn off. And this can happen from water, but more often it happens from perspiration or just rubbing up against things. Or, you know, if it's in an area near where a line in your clothing is, maybe the clothing just kind of rubs it off over time. So more often than that, than, than it being the chemical process, it's just about us being physically active. And what I tell most people is at some point it's also difficult to get sunscreen to re-adhere. So if you're outside and it's a warm day, one of the hardest things to do is get sunscreen to actually properly bind to your skin if you're sweaty. So my my general recommendation is just balance things. If you're going to be out in the sun, figure out a way that you can leverage shade in some way, if at all possible. Or get to a cool enough spot to where you can reapply sunscreen. And that another thing I read about it is one of the other benefits and why you should probably do it almost right after you do the first pass is you usually miss spots. We all do. Yeah, we're trying to rub this stuff all over, but it's, it's an annoyance and I get that. Believe me, I don't like putting it on every day, but there is benefit to it. But whether you're complementing it with shading and stuff, one of the primary ways that I've learned to deal with it is in the clothing choices I make and using it's a different type of rating UPF based clothing and I know not all clothing has these numbers and it would be good if they all did so that you would know but a lot of times just the clothing choices that you make can go a long way in providing you effective sun protection even more so than sunscreens so think about that think about not just about the sunscreen having it available and reapplying it reasonably often enough. But how you create what I would call, you know, a sun protection plan, clothing, shady spots, all those sort of things. And I know it's not always reasonable. Okay. There are going to be times when it's just not, but you got to do your best. You got to try to think it through and just remember that sun's bouncing around. So whether it's off a water surface, whether it's off snow, wherever you are. And that's one of the things that drives me, like going skiing in the wintertime. Some of the most dangerous, concerning problems are how the sun bounces off the snow. And you think, well, I've got hats on, all this other stuff protecting me. But it's the stuff bouncing back up that can be problematic for you. Let's keep all those things in mind. So can we really beat these elements, the sun, the wind, snow, and rain. We can keep them at bay, if you will. 
we can cause a pause in how they're impacting us. And I think that's the important piece. The more you do, right, the more you as an individual can incorporate those things into your protective plan, if you will, or your adaptive strategies, whatever you want to call it. And actually, it seems like we tend to do those things. You know, I've mentioned in the past that research has been a little inconclusive about how much past weather events and how we dealt with it impacts our future behaviors. But a new study came out, and I'll put a little link in the show notes about it. It's not the study itself, but a write-up about it, about how it does seem like we do it. And, and they looked at the, the research a little differently and threw in some different thresholding and, and ways to evaluate it. And it shows that, like so many things in our lives, right, the, the past does influence the future and how we behave, and weather is just a piece of that equation. But it's a reminder that that we can leverage, even with simple things like we've talked about today, ways to incorporate our knowledge and our understanding, or even those around us, into an effective way of, of plotting through life with weather hopefully being a you know long for the ride as opposed to a major disruptor or too much of a life-altering event in a bad way anyways. If it's in a good way, I'm all for it. I don't know. If if you have questions about this stuff or if you have, you know, just interesting things you've done, don't hesitate to let me know. Enjoy that kind of stuff too. What is it about the weather at gmail.com? What is it about the weather.com slash contact? But in the meantime, whether simple or complex, whether old style or new tech, whatever it is, leverage it, understand it, and appreciate how weather becomes a piece of your life, a part of your life fabric, if you will. Because as we all know, there's much more to weather than the weather itself. This is a two-white production. We're tired of hearing our uncle grovel, so please support him on patreon.com slash weather.